Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be here at camp meeting. And we're here to receive a spiritual blessing. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will be present, not only in this room, but throughout this campus. That you would anoint each preacher, each speaker, each presenter. We ask for a special blessing on the young people and elder bachelor's meetings with the, with the young people. Lord, bless this conference, the Mother Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church worldwide. Keep it faithful, Lord, a light shining in the darkness. And bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a lot to say, and I don't talk fast like some of these moderns do. They talk so fast, you know, you can't process what they're saying. But I'm going to have to talk a little faster this week because I'm a little concerned that I'm not going to be able to share everything that I have with you if I don't speed up a little bit. So you can open your Bibles to 1 John. And I'm going to start by telling a story. And you can find this story in my book, The Road I Traveled, and they have some in the ABC. But when I was a young minister just out of seminary, in my, I was a Lutheran at that time, and I was in my first Lutheran parish. And believe it or not, I was asked to make a presentation at what was called in those days a Bible camp. They don't call them Bible camps anymore, but that's what we call them. And after my presentation, it was in the evening and it was getting dark and everybody left the little chapel that we were in. <clears throat> and one lady lingered behind and they locked the door so we had to sit on the steps with one light bulb above our heads. And uh, she said, I have something I need to talk with you about. And she said, uh, I don't know if my sins are forgiven. In other words, she didn't have the assurance that her sins were forgiven. And being a young pastor, I didn't know what to say right away. So I did something I had never done before. I, I shot a prayer up to heaven. And I asked God to help me, to help this lady. And I, the words came to my mind, open First John to the first chapter. That's what, I, that's what I told her. She had her Bible with her. And I said, read. Read verse 9. And she read it out loud. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I asked her, have you confessed? 
She said, yes, many, many, many times. I said, are you forgiven? She said, I don't know. So I said, read it again. And she kind of looked at me and I said, please read it again. She read it aloud again. And I said, have you confessed? And she said, I just told you many times. And I said, are you forgiven? I'm not sure. And I said, read it again. <laughs> and she said, you got to be kidding. I said, no, read it again. And so she read it aloud again. And I said, have you confessed? Yes. I said, are you forgiven? And she paused. And after a little while, she said, I guess I am. Amen. And I said, how do you know that you're forgiven? And she says, because it says so right here. Amen. Now, you know, you don't learn how to be a pastor in a seminary. And I'm, I'm a former seminary professor, and I'm saying that. You get ideas, you get philosophy, you get theory. But, it, but you become a pastor by pastoring. Amen. It's like teaching a puppy how to swim. You just throw it in the water. How many of you ever had a puppy? Did you notice that if you, if you take the puppy in your hands, and it's never, never been near water, but you hold it over water, and what does it do? <laughs> right like that. So you just drop it in the water and it swims. Well, that's what I learned on that day. I was learning to become a pastor. And nobody taught me how to do that in the seminary. You got to get out and do it. And you learn by experience. Ever since then, 1 John has been a favorite of mine. Anyway, were it not for the warnings found in the Word of God in the New Testament, it would be hard to believe that some of the churches that arose out of the Reformation are today uncertain, divided, disputing, to the point of preaching and teaching a confused, misleading, and even deceptive message. What Paul calls a different gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished, he said, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The biblical gospel proclaims that the basic human problem is sin. 
for which the solution was Calvary. It calls for the death of the old man or the old woman, signified in baptism by immersion and then walking in newness of life, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be obedient, which we cannot do by nature, which is why we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And this different gospel being proclaimed today says that sin in human beings is not the problem. Instead, sin is found in social oppression, in unjust social institutions, for which the solution is that a loving God accepts everybody unconditionally because of their created goodness. Inclusive social justice is the essence of this different gospel. Sounds good, but is it the truth? The, this different contemporary gospel teaches, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is doing new things today even though such new things contradict the biblical witness. Number two, it teaches that the power of sin is not present in human life, but in social institutions and injustice. Number three, it teaches that the gospel and the law of God are opposed to each other. And therefore, number four, the gospel abolishes the law. And number five, it teaches that baptism does not signify dying and rising with Christ to a new life, but is a kind of a rite of confirmation or initiation that guarantees acceptance by God. And then number six, it teaches that Jesus is not the only way to find acceptance by God. And this is in contrast to his own, in Jesus' own words in John 14, verse 6, the gospel, when he says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, it teaches that the cross was not necessary, this different gospel. And so what is being identified as simply a difference of interpretation, as healthy theological pluralism, which, by the way, is speaking of 
euphemistically as enlarging the tent. That is in reality part of the life and death struggle that is called the great controversy. And the seriousness of the situation becomes apparent when it is seen against the background of the major contemporary challenges to biblical Christianity, which the church was created by God to preach and to teach and to defend. Now here's the cultural challenge. That of postmodern secular humanism, which denies absolute truth. It's almost unbelievable at a time when the Christian witness to the biblical gospel is so desperately needed that so much of Protestantism is abandoning sola scriptura, or the, the word alone. And consequently, they're scuttling the Reformation. Halloween gets more attention on October 31 than the Reformation does. Unbelievable. Except for the New Testament warning, 1 John chapter 2, Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. John does not identify the specific people to whom his letter is addressed, but he calls them his little children. In chapter 2, verse 1, 18, 28, chapter 3, verse 2, verse 10, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 4, he says, little children. But he does identify the historical context as that of the last hour and the return of Jesus. <coughs> in chapter 2, verse 28. Therefore, it has great relevance for us, this, this little letter, who, just as those who lived at the time it was written, live at a time of political, social, moral, and religious turmoil and confusion. And for those who breathed a sigh of relief that the 20th century of warfare was finally over, that First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, etc., etc., my century, For people who believed the sigh of relief that that century was gone and over, 
and look forward to the new day promised by the 21st century, those kind of hopes have been dashed to bits by the first 19 years. John reminds us that it's as true today as it was back then that many antichrists have come. Now, antichrist is a compound word formed from anti, which means against or instead of. And Christos, the name of Christ, and by the way, that's a word, Antichrist, which is used only by John in this letter and in 2 John, verse 7. And you can't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. And against, Antichrist, against, opposing Christ is more in keeping with the characteristics of this spiritual force that John talks about in this letter. And the Apostle Paul talks about the same spiritual power that opposes Christ in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He calls it the mystery of lawlessness. And the lawless one, whose coming is, quote, by the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now, in John's day, that opposition was manifest politically in the persecuting power of the Roman Empire. And religiously, it was manifest, first of all, in the denial of the Incarnation and holding that Jesus only appeared to have a human body. And that idea was called docetism. The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then secondly, it was manifest in the idea that Jesus was only the natural born son of Joseph and Mary. And that Christ entered the body of Jesus at his baptism and departed before the crucifixion. And that idea was called Serentheanism. And I had a professor in the Lutheran seminary who was teaching that. That Jesus was not the Christ until his baptism. That's when the Christ entered the body of Jesus. And I sat there dumbfounded. The Bible says, John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, who's it referring to? Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Now, how could, how could John have such foreknowledge and anticipation of events? How could he have such discernment? It's like he somehow knew what the needs of God's people and his church would be 2,100 years later. And by the way, I want to tell you that I believe based on my study and my experience since I became an Adventist. I believe that God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist movement in the middle of the 19th century because with his foreknowledge, he knew what was coming and he needed a people who would say true to the word when the need arose. And it's awesome to become aware that when this little letter was, is laid down like a grid over the beginning of the 21st century, that it fits those needs so remarkably well. And later, when he wrote the Revelation, with its symbolic language, depicting the church in great distress and assuring it of final victory in Jesus, he referred four times to being in the Spirit. 110, 42, 173, 2110. I got the wrong word numbers there, I think. <laughs> but anyway, you read the read the, the letter, you'll you'll discover he says that four times that he was in the spirit. During which he heard and saw things that nobody else could hear or see. Excuse me, that's a reference to the book of Revelation. Yeah, so I was right. <laughs> And he, when he reported them, he said in Revelation 1-2, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, who as ascended high priest ministers to on our, on our behalf in the holy places. By the way, I'm not going to talk about this, but it, it was remarkable to me as I studied and made my transition into this church, that Jesus is not only preparing us for a place, he's preparing that place for us. Why does heaven need to be prepared? 
what's, what, what, is, what is the problem? And that's exactly why Jesus, as high priest, as when he, after he ascended into heaven, became the high pri- our high priest. What's he doing? What has he been doing in heaven as our high priest? He has been cleansing the sanctuary. Of what? The record of our sin. Jesus does it all. He not only died for our sins, forgives our sins, gives us victory over sin, he's cleansing the heavenly record. So there's nothing to stand against us anymore. Anyway, in 1 John, John establishes the basis of his authority and his message on that which he heard and saw as one of the apostles that followed Jesus while the Lord was still on the earth. In other words, he had a personal day-to-day relationship with Jesus. He heard it. And he saw it, he says, with our, his own eyes. 1 John 1, 1, 2, 3. And touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. He's saying, I have seen it and testify to it. That which we have seen and heard We proclaim, I proclaim, he's saying, to you. Now, with those words, John leaves us in no doubt as to the authenticity of his personal experience with Jesus. He actually saw and heard and touched the word, Jesus. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. And we need to know what we're talking about. And just before his ascension, Jesus said to the disciples, and John was there and he heard it, he said, and this is in Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So when the Holy Spirit came, it was in fulfillment of the Lord's promise, which John also records in his Gospel, chapter 15, beginning with verse 26. He says, when the Helper comes, the Spirit whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. John was there and he heard Jesus say that. 
Now, don't you think it made an impression on his thinking? His understanding of his own personal mission? And why would it have made that kind of an impression on John? Because the whole matter of being Christ's witness, of testifying about him, is modeled after Christ's own testimony. And in responding to questions posed by the Pharisee Nicodemus, Jesus said, and John records it in chapter 3 of his gospel, verse 11, Jesus said, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. It was John who reported that incident and those words of Jesus. Now, quoting scripture is fine. But it has to be done by people who have an authentic experience with Christ. Why do I say that? Because otherwise it's not credible. The witness is not credible. It's incredible instead. And John underscores this in the last chapter of this letter, 1 John 5, verses 10 and 11, when he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, it's hard to dispute and argue with personal testimony. If we're honest, authentic persons, we cannot deny what the Lord has done for us, done in us, and and what he has made us to be. Why not? John couldn't have said it any better. He said, 1 John 1, 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Any person who has the kind of personal fellowship with Jesus that John describes will do everything possible to share that fellowship with other people. Why? Because the fellowship of God's faithful people, the church, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means the called out ones, is the divinely established means of bringing together the Father, Son, with those who do not yet know the Father and the Son.
Now listen to this from Ellen White, from Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 49 and 50. By the way, do you know what I discovered in the spirit of prophecy? I discovered the same kind of pietism, and some people think that's a bad word, that was a part of my wife's and my spiritual heritage in the Finnish Lutheran, in Finland. Tradition. You know, there's good tradition and bad tradition. And that was good. And it really helped me become an Adventist because I found it right there in, in front of my face in the spirit of prophecy. But anyway, listen. She says, although there are evils existing in the church and will be until the end of the world, the church in these last days is to be the light of the world that is polluted and demoralized by sin. The church enfeebled and defective, needing to be reproved, warned, and counseled is the only object upon earth upon which Christ bestows his supreme regard. God has a church on earth, she says, who are lifting up the downtrodden law and presenting to the world the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The church is the depository of the wealth, of the riches, of the grace of Christ. And through the church, eventually, will be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God to the world that is to be lightened with its glory. Now it's bad enough when individual believers commit spiritual adultery. But it's far more serious when a church charged by God with upholding his truth, his will, and his righteousness supports and approves such spiritual adultery. Maybe John wrote perhaps the most familiar words in the whole Bible. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But in this letter, his focus is not on the world that lies in the power of the evil one, as he says, 
but on his focus is on God's people, on the church. That's where John's focus is. And why is that so? Because it is that church which must understand and fulfill the mission that is required by the last hour. And it is that church that has to be prepared to meet those demands, the demands of the last hour. Now, you know, they shortened this time. We, we only have an hour instead of an hour and 15 minutes. So I'm trying to talk fast. Although I hate to. Anyway, we need to remember that he is writing specifically to the church that's living and fulfilling its mission and its ministry in the last hour. Now! That's where we are. We're in the last hour. And we need to remember that he is writing specifically to the church that's living in that hour. And notice that it, it's the last hour, not the last year or the last month or the last week or the last day, but the last hour. Getting kind of close, isn't it? John has been identified by many Bible students as the apostle of love. Would you agree? On the basis of John 3.16 and other passages in his writings, as well as on the fact that John's favorite reference to himself is as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John 13, 23, he, he repeats that in the gospel four times. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, was it egotistical on his part to refer to himself in that way? Jesus loved all of his disciples, didn't he? He loves the whole world, even those who don't love him. But biblical evidence reveals that John had surrendered most completely to the influence of Jesus. And because of the depth of that surrender, his character reflected Christ more than the others. For example, compare him with rash, impulsive Peter. John was the most receptive, 
the most teachable of all of them. Now, how important is that? It can certainly be said that the grace of Jesus transformed him so that he devoted the rest of his life in his service. It was John to whom Jesus, speaking from the cross, entrusted the care of his mother, Mary. And he did that, I think, because he probably knew that John was going to live the longest of all of the apostles, uh, early disciples. John was the first disciple to arrive at the tomb of Jesus. He was the first to understand the mighty significance of the Lord's resurrection. And it was John, he, he reminds us in his gospel in chapter 13, who reclined, quote, at table close to Jesus, right next to him at the Last Supper, in other words, who because of that closeness at one point in the conversation, he leaned back against Jesus. In other words, he, he heard, he saw, and he touched the Lord, as he says in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, Jesus did not rebuke John for inappropriate behavior. He didn't, Jesus did not draw away from him when he leaned against him. Jesus didn't push John away, but rather Jesus accepted his closeness and his innocent touch for what it was. It was the genuine and pure affection of a man for his Lord. No wonder John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wasn't being egotistical. And by the time he wrote this letter, he was an old man who had seen it all. The last survivor of the 12 who had lived through some pretty tough years in the life of the early church. Through a lot of religious opposition and Roman persecution. And he seems to be acutely aware that such times would come again for God's people. In other words, full circle in the life of his church. And in Revelation, he calls those times the Great Tribulation. Chapter 7, verse 14. Now, it's no wonder that Jesus chose John to receive and pass on his message in the book of Revelation. 
Revelation 1, verse 1. He, Jesus, made it the things that must soon take place. Known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. That he saw in vision also. Now, obviously John loved the ones to whom he wrote this little letter. He called them my little children. And his love and concern for the church of the last hour is vividly apparent all the way through this little epistle. He writes to affirm, to affirm and encourage so that our joy may be complete. Chapter 1, verse 4. So that you may not sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. Because your sins are forgiven. Chapter 2, verse 12. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 13. Because you have overcome the evil one. Chapter 2, verse 13. Because you know the Father, chapter 2, verse 13. Because you are strong, chapter 2, verse 14. And he writes to warn them about those who are trying to deceive you, chapter 2, verse 26. And lastly, he writes to assure and give confidence in the future, no matter what may may be what the future may hold. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. And so this, this grandfatherly man takes his little children by the hand, as it were, on a journey of preparation for the mission required by the demands of the last hour. And that's why this little letter is so relevant for the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now, in my opinion. So by faith, let's join hands with John and with each other, and see where the journey takes us. And why should we do that? Because just at the time he wrote, the church of today is threatened by forces that would destroy it. At the very time, it's clear and courageous Witness is most needed in the world that God so loved. The church of the last hour is facing popular philosophies that threaten its very life and its witness. 
And that's why we need to be clear, very clear, about the biblical message, and we have to be certain about our mission. What is the mission of this church? Why did God raise it up? Now, I mentioned earlier, and I'm going to repeat it, we, we need to observe before we go any further that this apostle of love doesn't begin this letter by talking about love. He mentions it briefly four times in chapter 2, but not until chapter 3 does he talk about love more fully. Instead, the apostle of love begins by talking about walking in darkness, walking in the light, about sin, about not practicing the truth. about deceiving ourselves, about confessing sins, about being cleansed of unrighteousness, and even about making God into a liar. Now, read, open your Bibles and let's read chapter 1, the first five uh, verses, uh, verse 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, by the way, when you read the word if, in the scriptures, it usually introduces a contrast or a condition, excuse me, a condition. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. Now, how do we hear those first five verses? in the context of the last hour and in relationship to fulfilling the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. The first thing that he makes clear is that the message he is communicating did not originate with himself. Or with any other human being. It was given by the Father and by the Son. And that message and none other 
is what John heard and what he passes on. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light illuminates. Light shows us the way. It exposes things for what they are. It reveals falsehood. Darkness, on the other hand, obscures. It hides the truth. And spiritually speaking, people prefer darkness to light. Jesus said, John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why not? Lest his deeds be exposed. And I think everybody knows the truth of that. Now what is the mission demand for the church of the last hour? It is not to walk in spiritual darkness. It is instead to practice the truth, practice the truth that God has revealed in his word. To claim fellowship with Jesus while walking in darkness is to deliberately mislead and deceive. It is hypocrisy, pretending to be something that one is not. Not just giving lip service to the truth, but to live it. Put it into everyday practice, no matter what the personal consequences. And why is that so important? Because such faithful living strengthens the church. John says in chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light in the midst of this world's spiritual darkness, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, we're on the same page. We're not disputing. We're not tearing things apart. Understanding the nature of the church as one body and the mission required by the demands of the last hour 
Can we truly be in fellowship with one another if we're not on the same page? No. When it comes to both the message and the mission? If the members of the body can't be trusted and depended upon by each other, we're in serious trouble. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He said that to his disciples. John heard him. Let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, there's a big difference between good works and the works of the flesh. We're supposed to do good works. Inspired and motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And these kind of works are good only if they are of the light. And not of the darkness. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, he said. That is to say spiritual, theological, philosophical, ecclesiastical, cultural, moral darkness. But will have the light of life. To do what? Illuminate, guide, and direct. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.